Hi there, welcome to the Red Dice Diaries podcast. I'm John. I'm Hannah. And today we're going to be talking about top 10 fantasy movie cliches that you can use in your RPG session. So, Hannah, what what are the benefits of potentially using cliches in a role-playing game? It's a nice sort of... It's almost like you've got a little script that the players already had before they even got into the game. When you approach a cliche and everybody goes along with it, it means you can really get a game rolling so you can keep the action moving more quickly. Yeah, I've always thought of them as sort of like a useful shorthand. Now, obviously, you want to have bits in your game that are individual and that aren't cliche. But let's face it, if you want to convey the fact someone's like a wise old wizardly dude, if you give him like a long beard, and a staff that saves you ages of explanation and people be like right got it and yet you can break away from those stereotypes and those cliches to to get more impact but most of us are on a fairly sort of tight time schedule when it comes to running games so if you can get across the essence of an npc or of a place or of a scheme or whatever in the space of a few sentences but still have an impact and so the players know what's going on it can save you a lot of that precious game time where you can get to the the players actually doing stuff also if you're newer to roleplay games the roleplaying part of it can be quite difficult and yes. yet you come across a couple of these fantasy cliches, you've seen it in a hundred movies, you can do that and that gives you the confidence to then go on and do more roleplay. Exactly in this episode we're going to be talking about top ten fantasy movie cliches that you can use in your RPG session. So, love, would you like to kick us off with the first one? So, first one is the hero's best friend. Oh, yeah. I mean, to think of, like, the Samwise Gamgee and like, Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and stuff like that. This is an especially useful sort of an NPC character to have if you've got a very small player group. But yeah. equally, it's a nice sort of way to get people to sit into a role. A bard is an ideal class for the hero's best friend. It's also good as well because you can use that sort of best friend NPC. And obviously there's been like hirelings and henchmen and stuff like that in sort of role-playing games going back to like the year dot. But it's useful because you can use the best friend to imply or say things about the character. So Karen using like sort of Frodo and Sam as like an example. The reason Frodo's like a bit odd is because he's not like all the other hobbits. He wants to go out and have adventures like his uncle Bilbo. But that's but how do you show all like what a normal hobbit's like? You haven't got time to like show all the village and get to know everyone. But if you show Samwise Gamgee, who just like really wants to just like have a quiet life and tend his garden, and but he wants to go along because he wants to help his friend out. You've always got that contrast. Also, a lot of people, particularly early on in games, come up with this character who's got no background, no nothing. There's just him and his sword and uh, his black tre- horse. Trench coat McNinja sword. If he's got this yeah, mate legit. who keeps getting him into trouble, who keeps like tipping him onto missions yeah. to go and do, or keeps getting into trouble and he has to go and be rescued, it makes for a really entertaining story. Okay, so I think that's it for point one. So point two is the pointless puzzle slash locked door. 
Now, come on, we all know this from RPGs. You get down into that dungeon, you're moving along, you're moving at a good pace, when suddenly, boom, there's a huge locked door in front of you. Or there's some random, like, Zelda-esque puzzle that you cannot continue through the dungeon until you've solved. I personally am not a massive fan of these, mainly because I find they tend to just sort of grind the progress and the sort of pace of the game down to a halt. I think they can be done very well. Harry Potter, the first film, as an example. A door that's effectively locked by a three-headed dog that's sitting on top of it. We all know the minute we see that door that the player characters are going to go through that door at some point. They haven't yet got all the information that they need to get through the rest of the dungeon. Right. So they can't get through the door right now. They have to run away and come back later with the information that they need to get see, through that door, with the key to that door. See, my problem with this sort of puzzle is it puts me in mind of like the old like text adventure game you get halfway through it and then it's like ah but you need the blue key to open the door you must go back three levels and down into the mines to find and that always just felt like a boring slog even back in the day with me as a way to get you to like retread over old areas i, I do agree like if, it, if it's handled like sensibly it can be done but i would certainly say don't make it so there's only like one solution like similarly it was quite a useful bit of character development in the lord of the rings in the uh, book where gandalf's sitting there trying to work out how to open the door to the minds of moria and he's reading that poem speak friend and enter and then no, no. comes frodo and goes hang on what, what what's the elf word for friend and it shows you that gandalf he doesn't know everything and yet an innocent question from this like innocent hobbit makes all the difference I think, I think it's an interesting point you mentioned there, Love. I mean, what, one thing which I hadn't considered is if you are doing these sort of puzzle scenes and the thief's like, sort of this locked door out, you could use that as a time to then say to the other players, you know, like, oh, what are you doing? You've got a chance to talk about things. I think it all depends on sort of how the pace of the game is at the time. So if the pace is like really licking along and it's, I don't suddenly want it to like hit a brick wall and stop. But by the same token, if, you know, if things are maybe a bit more relaxed, yeah, I could see that working. Also, it's a handy bookend for if you need to end a session or call a break. What's point three on the list then, Lord? Fantastic food and drink, which we've seen in many a movie. I think that's handy that this leads on from our last point, because these sort of food and drink scenes, these feast scenes, if you want to call them, they can be really great to give your characters a bit of a breather, a bit of a time to relax... It also allows people who've like not used charisma as a dump stat to like get their game on basically and mm -hmm. you know like your bards and your people like that. Mm -hmm. You can find out useful information depending who's there, stuff like that. And as a GM, I mean you could always it's always useful because you can throw in little tidbits about your game world. Taverns and feasts are also really good places to put a combat scene. Um, think the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones or like every tavern brawl in everything. Oh, yeah. Um, the one in Willow stands out as being really good. Well, well, the nice thing about those sort of like barroom brawl scenes, sort of, well, the, the way I prefer to do them anyway, is uh, most of them probably aren't going to be lethal, really. Because let's face it, you're in a barroom brawl, you're not likely to be like pulling out your plus five Holy Avenger fireball sword or whatever and laying the smack down on some yokel. It's probably going to be a fist fight. You're probably not going to die. You might take a few bumps and bruises. Unless anyone gets killed, like the town watch, you're probably going to like give you a bit of a warning or whatever. And I'm not saying they can't get out of hand because, you know, players do like to burn things. 
but it, it's a nice way of sort of getting a bit of a combat in and getting a bit of a practice in but without there being any like madly massive consequences so if you have one at the start of a game it can be great as like, almost like a, a rehearsal for like the actual combat so it'll be coming yeah. later it's a, it's a really good model for the combat to test out the system yeah exactly okay so point four characters explaining their tragic backstory and this happens a lot in fantasy films you know you'll get uh, you get someone turn up and they'll be like oh well i was just a i was just a boy the day they came to my village in their black hawk helicopters i can still hear my goat screaming stuff like that you know how they were given their father's sword on his deathbed and all that sort of guff well, one of the things I find useful about this, and one of the ways I like to flip it, have an NPC who's like that, who turns mm-hmm. up. Because like, normally it's the stereotypical images. It's a player who's made this tragic backstory. They tell everybody they come across. Whereas if you have an NPC turn up, who's basically like that guy, turns up and he's talking about his tragic backstory, and it, you do it very sort of overblown, it, it flips it round a bit. It makes it a little bit different. And it's interesting mm-hmm. to see how the characters respond to that because if you sort of like oh, i'm not listening to like this fool and you sort of like throw him off a bridge or whatever you can't really then turn around later on and be like but have i told you about my father's sword i don't know i think there is a place for that sort of thing yeah in the bin depending on your player group some people do love that stuff they lap it up <laughs> don't, don't get the idea that i'm entirely opposed to like a tragic backstory or people putting effort into their character backgrounds I mean, I'm running a vampire game at the minute. We've got quite a few characters with like extensive backgrounds, but they're not telling every NPC they come across all of their background. Less is more. Point What's five. The next point, yeah. Okay, so it's the secondary villain who is a little bit rubbish. We're talking about the lieutenant character, the second in command. He he's like the sort of midway boss. As far as I'm concerned, like the main useful reason to have these is because if you're putting like a big baddie in a an RPG scenario, you don't want him to be someone that the player characters can just stroll up to right off the bat and be like, wow, that's you dealt with. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, you want the players to have some sort of victories. You don't want it to just be like defeat after defeat after defeat mm-hmm. until they get powerful enough to take on the main bad guy. That gives the players chance to defeat that sort of lieutenant, get themselves a bit more powerful, maybe find out about a bit more information about the main bad guy, and they're more well-armed when they go on to face him. And also, they've got like a bit of a victory tucked under their belt. See, you know, it gives them a bit of a chance to like get their swagger on a little bit and stuff like that, which is all good. This is where it comes in really handy to um, scale how your campaign's going to go. Oh, yeah, yeah. And to be able to say, oh, yeah, I am going to have this big, like, really hard villain that's going to be virtually undefeatable to begin with. But as you say, it gives you players that little target to, like, lean towards... So next on the list is the level up montage and we've seen this from a hundred films. I think Team America did a song about it. Similarly, like every Robin Hood movie always has that scene where they're training up the Merry Men. Yeah. Um, I mean, think about things like Krull as well and all that sort of fantasy sort of films. It starts off with the guys like, oh, I've maybe got like a power or a special like doohickey that I can use, but I've not quite mastered it. And as the film goes on, they inevitably have that bit where they get a chance to like practice with it and like, oh, they've unlocked the power in like whatever it is. Well, this is basically the point either in between two campaigns 
in between two sessions or in between two parts of a story, depending on exactly what's going on. Yeah. But it's the point where your characters level up. And yeah. it's me calling it a level up montage. Now, obviously in um, traditional games, they tend to like give you XP, but also there's games where they do like milestone XP. So when you have a particularly like climactic encounter, mm-hmm. like maybe with a lieutenant to the bad guy or whatever, that's when you level up. I know there's optional rules in D&D and I'm sure there's rules in other games where you have to have a specific amount of time to train before you can actually level up as well as getting the XP. Effectively, it's just another kind of downtime. Okay, so the next point is the young hero from a poor background <laughs> who saves the world. So, examples there of so many. Yeah, I Sharp. Mean, yeah, Sharp comes from like a commoner background, sort of rises up to being the in charge of a company of soldiers. Luke Skywalker, the stereotypical like farm boy who becomes a Jedi Knight. This is quite a, a handy sort of metaphor for role-playing games because you tend to start off with your starting level character. You know, you're not exactly strong. You know, you've not got much experience. You're going to get your starting skills or whatever, depending on what system you're using. Then as the game progresses, you sort of become more powerful, as we were saying in the, the previous points. And you get to that point where you become this hero and you can do these sort of like world-shaking things. I think that whole sort of hero's journey from the start to the finish really is like a model of RPGs. It's not surprising because I'm sure a lot of it was based on that. Oh, very much. But I think it's definitely a useful thing for gems to keep in mind while you're thinking about the progression of your campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's quite easy to forget, to be honest, and just sort of go, oh, well, people are going up in level, so more powerful monsters. Whereas what you should probably really be thinking is, oh, people are getting more powerful. Their ability to change the campaign setting and sort of impose their will on it is increasing. I think the, the threats and the sort of scope need to widen as the player characters get more powerful. What's next, Sam? So, you mentioned the hero's journey, Mm -hmm. and uh, that very much leads on to the next point, which was the wise old dude who lays out the plot. Yeah, and I mean, we obviously we've got Obi-Wan Kenobi when he's talking to Luke. We've got Gandalf when he like rocks up in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Dumbledore. Dumbledore, yeah. In certainly in fantasy novels, there tends to be the young protagonist who doesn't know much. And then there's like the slightly older and more experienced sort of mentor figure who sort of leads them into the world that they're going to be involved in and provides some handy exposition so we as the reader can find out what's going on and some of the past and stuff like that now i would advise you not to do this in the same way if you're doing an rpg so i'd say rpgs are more interactive than when you're just reading a book but you can still have npcs who can like give out little tidbits of backgrounds these sorts of characters they can be quite useful as you say but a lot of players will jump on them and attack them or ignore them or whatever the one way that I've found to like make them that bit more sort of that the player characters will pay attention to them is sort of going back to that hero's best friend thing, have them be like the father, grandfather, uncle yeah. of one of your characters. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You've got to give them some sort of grounding so that, so you're not just like, and random wizard. Yeah. So next on the list... This is a proper classic. Oh yes, the skeleton or the statue's going to move! The scene pans across 
particularly actually in Scooby Doo, you'd see this because <laughs> the animation style made it stand out even more. Where it pans across the scene and there's this statue, but it's been drawn differently, so you can tell it's going to be animated in a yeah, minute. Yeah, yeah. Or there's this like skeleton in whatever fantasy movie in the dungeon in the in a grave or something like you can see that prop's been made to move that's going to move or in that fantasy game that we played last weekend where we went into the dungeon oh yeah and this is icrpg game yeah and and there's the big statue of the evil bug creature and we're like that's going to move in a minute Sure enough, it did. Yeah, of course it did. I mean, that was the point. It was like a cliche sort of dungeon crawl, wasn't it? But yeah, I mean, there's the obvious thing. Like, you go into a dungeon and you're like, oh, there's a skeleton lying on the floor and there's a gold ring on its finger. You best believe if you touch that ring, that skeleton is coming to life or some sort of trap's going to go off and you're going to regret it. I mean, you can still use this as a cliche. I mean, as Hannah was saying, uh, when we played in Johannes' game, we all knew we were playing like a one-shot. It was put together fairly quickly because it was a replacement for another game that had to be cancelled. We all knew it was just going to be like a a sort of cliche, tongue-in-cheek, dungeon crawler. So when we saw the big statue, we were all sort of like, aye, aye. That was all part of the fun and we were all buying into it. I think if if everyone's buying Mm -hmm. into it, that's great. There is no problem with it. But also, I'm not a big fan of the whole like subverting expectations for the for the sake of it. But in this case, you can use that to subvert. I mean, have a few skeletons with rings on their fingers, and the players go to look at them. It's just a skeleton with a ring mm-hmm. on his finger. And that oh yeah, it doesn't have to be like a massively valuable ring. Oh yeah, you've you found a ring that's worth like ten gold pieces on a skeleton's finger. There you go. And the players are like, oh okay. And that can sort of throw them back a bit, and it lets them know that like not everything's going to be as they expect in that dungeon. So later on when you have like maybe a few more things that are a bit cliched, they're not instantly going to be like, oh yes, I know what this is, I know what that is, because they'll be thinking, oh yeah, but that skeleton, I didn't just take the ring off its finger, it didn't come to life. A bit of subversion can be useful in that sort of sense. You have to accept that you are using a different medium if you're going to take ideas from film and use them in your games. Yeah, there'll be adaption needed. You have to adapt, and it doesn't mean you can't use the cliche, it means you need to use it differently if you're going to use it. Okay, so what's our last point then, Hannah? Ah, the two great armies meeting across a battlefield. Yeah. Sharpening their swords, putting on their face paint and tightening up their armour. Yeah, it's a standard (laughs) fantasy classic. Nothing says grand fantasy film than like two armies, normally one of light, one of darkness, meeting, facing each other across a huge battlefield. Again, in a juxtaposed montage scene where we get some flashes of the bad guy's army and then a couple of shots of the good guy's army yeah, doing you, similar things but in different ways. You'll probably have a bit of a close-up on like the hero characters and like the main villains who are dotted amongst them. But this, things like this can be quite useful in RPGs. So, as well as like Obviously, you don't want to play through like every cut and thrust of like a massive, massive battle. You want to focus on like what the heroes are doing during it, and sort of describe the rest in broad strokes, so you can keep the pace of the game going. Unless you're into like the bigger scale war gaming, in which well, case you can certainly do that. To me, it always looks like a gaming table being laid out. Obviously, I used to work at a gaming shop. I've watched many, many, many games being laid out and can think of quite a few more unusual armies. But to go back to the Lord of the Rings... uh, But to go back to the Lord of the Rings, 
um, seeing all the uh, mamluks lined up on one side and the goblins on the other or elves on one side. Those scenes you were talking about like at the start of the movie where they pan across like the battle line and you see the mm. different sides, they could be very useful if you do sort of like a little cutaway or a little description in an RPG to sort of highlight the differences between like the two forces. You've just got to keep half an eye on the pacing when and if the actual big conflict begins. I personally, I don't know about you, I personally think it's far better to just have a few little vignettes of like things that happen, like little scenes during the battle rather than do the whole thing. Like um, Big, big combats are extremely tedious to play through if you don't enjoy war games. Yeah. I know there are people who enjoy war games and great have fun with it now if you want the player what the players do to have an effect on the battle you could always let them do their little scenes against like lieutenants and secondary sort of villains and if they win the majority of their scenes the battle goes well for them if they don't the battle goes poorly and then you can cut to the end as we said with like the sort of leveling up montage you know you give like a bit of an overview of like oh yes the, the battle has gone poorly and the defenders along with yourself withdraw to the citadel and sort of bar the gates to try and keep out the enemy and then you can move on with the rest of the game i think one of the advantages of this approach is if you've got people who prefer a, a more theater of the mind approach and don't like using like virtual tabletop tokens like i prefer to do or miniatures then you can still have like a big battle but you because you're only doing these small little scenes with maybe like half a dozen protagonists in that's pretty easy to keep track of whereas if you're going on a, like a much larger scene with bigger numbers of people it starts to get very challenging to sort of for everyone to keep in their mind where everyone is and you really do start to need some sort of representation for that mm-hmm. right well i think that's pretty much covered our top 10 fantasy movie cliches that you can use in your rpg session we hope you found that useful if you've got any suggestions for 10 top tips episodes you'd like to see in the future from myself and hannah you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail message on the speakpipe website there's a link in the description we really do appreciate all of the contact and the feedback that you give us so until we see you next time from myself and hannah take care stay safe and keep gaming. We'll see you soon. Bye. Luckily, we didn't leave only one way for our cat to bypass our latch-the-door puzzle, did we, Phantom? Swords! Let me tell you about swords. This is a sword my father gave me. When they first find out, like, oh, you know, like, Sauron's on the rise... They don't immediately like put their knuckle dusters on and go to like Mount Doom to like take him on, do they? And in the fourth age of man, blah blah blah. I like fought in the Clone Wars, but not those shit ones out of the prequels. Obi Wan Kenobi's such a liar. Yeah, but, but you know what I mean. have got the power of love, John. Yeah, it's a curious thing.